that we've had some bad authorities. <laughs> Let's don't ignore that. There have been some bad authorities. We've had presidents who've acted like they're dictators. We've had a Congress who's no more by, about its lying and its spending than taking principled stands. We've had governors who care more about who you sleep with than actually dealing with a state bureaucracy that's run amok. We've had CEOs who really worry more about the payouts that they're gonna get than actually running an ethical business and giving jobs to people who need it. We've had pastors who worry more about making a name for themselves than serving the people that God has asked them to serve. We've had school administrators worry more about funding than teaching children. We've had parents looking out for their careers and their achievements more than paying attention to their children's health and wellness. Fact is, I think we all want to be the boss. I like to be the boss, don't you? <laughs> it's fun to be the boss. You get to call the shots. Everybody wants to lead, but nobody wants to follow orders. And that's an unsafe and unsustainable situation. Could you imagine a, a police department that has everybody calling the shots and nobody listening? Could you, imagine a, could you imagine a business acting in that way where they're, everybody's saying, we're going to do this, and the next person says, we're going to do that, and then nobody actually does anything? Could you imagine a church in which every person in the church thinks that their way is the best way to do things? But not only is it an unsafe and untenable situation to do that way, it's a terrible assumption. It's a terrible assumption that is the same assumption that the religious leaders that Jesus deals with and confronts in Luke chapter 20, that they are making. It assumes that we, human beings, are in charge. It assumes that we have the right to make the call. By the way, is it not just a very American thing to do? <laughs> I'm the best. I'm the one in charge. But it's not just an American thing. These are Jewish leaders in the first century these are people in the ancient world and they had the same opinion that they knew best. But in this whole thing, if you hear nothing else that I, that I say for you today, you need to hear this. Jesus makes it plain, you're not. You're not in charge. He is. In verses 1 through 18 of chapter 20, there is a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders in which they essentially say to him, who put you in charge? Where's your authority coming from? In fact, it's kind of rooted. If you go to chapter 19 and verse 47, it see, you see there that um, in, in 19 verse 47, that the chief priest and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him, Jesus. These people, the chief priests and the scribes, they are the religious leaders, and I will probably refer to them as the religious leaders. There's different names that are used there, but these are the guys who are, for, for our purposes today, we might say they're the preachers. They're the guys that are, are maybe the deacons or whoever you think runs a church. They're the ones that, that are they're the char in charge. That's who these people are. And they are ready to kill Jesus. They're angry with him. The reason they're angry with him is, do y'all remember two Sundays ago we saw Jesus enter into the to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry? 
And I know that in modern era, we think about his triumphal entry. That's just, that's a wonderful thing. Everybody's praising him. And it's, it's, it's days before, weeks before uh, he is about to be uh, crucified. So it's kind of part of our Easter traditions and all that sort of thing. But what these people understood is what Jesus meant by that triumphal entry. In fact, if you go down to verse 39 of chapter 19, you're still in 19, go to verse 39. And some of the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. He says, God, he said, Jesus, you got to stop them from praising you. You got to stop them because they recognize that Jesus coming into the Jerusalem on that donkey, he was saying to the world, even if nobody was listening, he was saying, I'm the king. I'm the king of peace. I'm entering into my city and I'm taking it. That's what he was saying. I'm the Messiah that's been promised and I am here. And these guys are like, no, 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 we don't like this. Stop. And then in verse 45 to 48, the end of chapter 19, you know that Jesus comes and he cleans the temple out. He takes out the money changers. You remember this? He does this and it's, 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 it's disruptive. But what he does, look at what he does. He, he, he says in verse 45, he casts out them that sold therein. He says, this is my, this is my, uh, the house of prayer, et cetera. In verse 46, verse 47. And he daily, he taught daily in the temple. Do you see what Jesus has done? He has gone. Not only has he entered into Jerusalem and said, this is mine. He's now walked into the temple and said, let's get the Junk out of here and let me start teaching. Let me reinstitute what needs to be happening here. They don't like this. The religious leaders do not like this. They are not happy with Jesus at all. So go to chapter 20 in verse 2, and here's what they say. Tell us by what authority dost thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? They say, who died and made you the leader of this temple? Why are you doing this? Now, if you were to read Jesus's answer here that from verse three to verse eight, he essentially turns back a question to them. He says, well, let, let me answer your question with a question. And he says, who is it that gave John authority to baptize? How about John the Baptist? Who gave him authority? Well, they, him and Hall, and they don't have an answer. The reason they don't have an answer is because they knew if they answered one way, they'd be supporting Jesus. If they answered another way, they would be uh, getting everybody else mad at them. So they did the political answer and they said, we don't know. We can't tell you. You know what Jesus said? Well, if you can't tell me, I can't tell you where my authority comes from. It's kind of a, it's kind of a I think, insight into Jesus's personality a little bit. He kind of messes with them. He's kind of toying with them. He's kind of provoking them a little bit. But then Jesus doesn't just provoke them. In verse, nine, verse 8, he says, Neither tell I, tell I you by what authority I do these things. He says, I'm not going to tell you. But what he does is in starting in verse 9, he tells a story, a parable. And in the parable, he tells them where his authority comes from. Let me summarize that parable for you. Just give you the, the high points on it. it. Tells a story about a man who plants a vineyard. He plants a vineyard. This, by the way, would have been common practice where maybe a wealthy man as an investment might have planted a, a vineyard or something like that, and he would have hired some people to take care of it for him. It would have been a normal practice to do that, and he would probably come back 
once a year to get his, his return on it. Uh, he might have said, you know, I expect a certain amount from this vineyard. If I'm going to let you work it, you get a little bit, but I'm going to get a little bit as well as my investment. This will have been typical, uh, normal thing. So he leases it out to this, this farmer to take care of, a, a husbandman in the King James. In verse 10, he talks about him. He leases it out to them and then sends his servants to collect his portion. He does this three separate occasions. The first occasion in verse 10 the servant is beaten. He doesn't get his money. Second occasion, the servant is abused in verse 11. Still doesn't get his money. The third occasion, the servant is wounded in verse 12. Still doesn't get his money. So here's this investor who's bought this vineyard and hired this man to take care of this with the, the full expectation that he's going to get a return on this. He's done this for his purposes. It's his. He owns it and he expects something from it. But every time he sends somebody to get something out of it, they turn him away. They say, no, you're not going to get it. And not only no, but let me go ahead and disrespect you by abusing and hurting your servants. So finally, he says in verse 13, look here what he says. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. By the way, in case y'all don't know who Jesus is talking about, he uses a phrase, beloved son. It's a phrase that John, or rather Luke, as well as the other gospel writers, but Luke uses this over whenever Jesus is baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well. This is what the father says of Jesus. In case y'all aren't following me, Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying, are y'all with me here? The vineyard is God's world. And God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And every time they reject God's prophets because they want to keep it for themselves. They want to do what they want to do. And now God, the Lord of the vineyard, sends his beloved son into the world. And what do they do? Verse 14, when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the, inhabitant, the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He is saying, listen, that this last time he sends a son, his very own son, with expecting a better outcome, but instead what happens, they kill him and take the vineyard, or at least try to take the vineyard. So what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? Verse 16, he tells them, he shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. I don't know if y'all are listening to the weight of what Jesus is saying here, but he's saying, listen, this world's mine. We, me and the Father have tried patiently and you've turned us back every time. This time he's trying to sit me. I'm the son. I, this is mine. I am the heir. Amen. I, it's mine. You ask me what my authority is. I own the place. That's my authority. And he says, and he's even predicting the end because we know if you flip over a few more pages, we know what happens to Jesus. He's crucified on the cross by these same people. 
And he says, listen, if you're going to, if this, is, if this is what you're going to do to the beloved son, if you kill him, it's the only hope that you, or the only outcome that you'd expect is that he would, in verse 16, come and destroy those who are supposed to be taking care of things. Look at the end of verse 16. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. The words that came out of their mouth was shock. <gasps> you mean he did that? Oh my goodness. They were they were scandalized. They were shocked. But you know why they were shocked? Not because of the story. Oh my goodness, there's a vineyard that we've never seen by uh, an owner we've never met that sent his son and they killed him and we don't know anything. That's not why they're shocked. Go down to verse 19. Can you skip down there? The chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, Jesus, and they feared the people for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. They all are listening to what Jesus is saying and they know exactly who he's talking to. And they're sitting there saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe he just said that. Oh no, please, that can't be the outcome. That's the response. And Jesus closes out this parable after the parable in verse 16. Then verse 17, he looks at him and says, he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Now what he's doing there is he is quoting, he is quoting Psalm 118 verse 26. And you say, well, Matthew, that's interesting, but why do I care? Let me try to explain why you should care. Remember the triumphal entry? All those people were saying all these wonderful things about Jesus. Do you know what they were quoting? Psalm 118. They were quoting the exact same psalm, and Jesus just picks another verse from the same song and said, you know, they were talking about me then. The Old Testament was all about me. That's his whole point. It's all about me. And he says, and he goes on in verse 18, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken and on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to power, powder. The cornerstone is gonna crush anything that gets in his way. That's what he's saying. Now I know Jesus loves us and Jesus is kind and he is merciful and he is, he is full of grace, but he is making it clear, really clear, this world is his. Ask him what his authority is. His authority is that he owns the place and he has a right to say what goes. He has the power, the possession, and the authority. It is all owned by him. And fighting against his ownership is going to crush us. Anybody that fights against his ownership will be crushed. The only hope and answer that you have is to unconditionally Uncondition, without conditions, surrender to him. It's his. It's his. He goes on in verse 19, picking up, rather I say he goes on, rather the, the leaders go on, the religious leaders go on in verse 19. Yes, as I've already said, they, they're trying to kill him in verse 19. And as they keep watching in verse 20, it says they, they watched him and sent forth spies. And the, the reason they're doing this is because they're looking for ways to trap Jesus. They're kind of trying to angle around him and trying to find ways to get him to say something that trips him up so that they'd have a reason to maybe turn him over to the Romans authorities or something to try to figure this out. So what they do is they approach him in, the, in this passage from verse 19 to verse 40, 
There's two kinds of questions they ask him. The first is a political question. In verse 21, if you go down to verse 21, they say, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. <laughs> they're buttering him up, by the way. That's what they're saying. If you ain't listening to what he's saying, they're buttering him up. We know you're so smart. We know you're so good. Okay? Here's the question, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Now, this is a political question. They are in Israel, Jewish people in Israel, and they, as most independent nations would like to be, they believe they have the power of their own destiny, yet the Roman government is slowly but surely taking over control over their government. And now they have this, this, um, uh, this Caesar, and one of the things that the Caesars would do was he would, the king of, Israel, of Rome rather, what he would do is he would tax people a lot. That's how he paid for his armies and all that sort of thing, you understand. And they were asking the question, is it right for us to pay these taxes that Caesar is imposing on us? They're wanting him to say, will you be pro-Rome or anti-Rome? Which side are you on, Jesus? Can, can we put it into today's language? Jesus, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Jesus, are you right wing or left wing? Which one are you? Which side do you fall on, Jesus? Hold that thought because they ask another question. The other question is a religious question. In verse 27, go down to verse 27. In verse, um, in verse 27, we've got these Sadducees who come to Jesus. And he tells us one key attribute of the Sadducees in verse 27, they deny any resurrection. So these were people that were Jewish in their faith, but they did not believe that once you died that you resurrected from the dead. Again, it doesn't seem like a very hopeful religion in my view, but that's their, that was their view. And they asked this question, and they, they formed this very intricate question. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many times. I think it's about six or seven times uh, that she ends up, she's married to a man, and then all the men die, and her, the, the brothers marry her over and over. All the brothers, go, she goes through all the brothers. And they ask at the end, in verse 33, Therefore, in the, direction, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. So they're asking this kind of hypothetical question. What's going to happen to this woman if once, once it's all said and done, she's been married to seven different men. They're all, it was the right thing for them to do because of the Jewish law, et cetera, et cetera. But which one is it? And they're, they're trying to ask him, now, Jesus, are you going to be pro-Pharisee, who would believe in the resurrection? Or are you going to be pro-Sadducee, who don't believe in the resurrection? If you're not following me, let's put it in today's vernacular. Jesus, are you going to be progressive or are you going to be traditional? Jesus, are you going to be liberal or are you going to be conservative? Which way is that? Which way are you going to fall out on this thing? Jesus, in his answer to both questions, he doesn't pick a side, nor does he play the middle, by the way. You know what Jesus does? He blows up the whole premise of the question altogether. In the political question, are you pro-Rome, anti-Rome? Are you liberal or conservative? Are you a Democrat or Republican? Which one is it, Jesus? He says, go to verse 25. Look at what he says about the, about the taxes. Verse 25. 
Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. Sort of on the surface makes some sense. Okay, Caesar stuff. He gets what he deserves, and God gets what he deserves. But don't miss the point of that statement. Who owns everything? It's not Caesar. The best Caesar can do is put his name on a coin. That's what they they got a name and likeness on a coin. That's the best Caesar's got. But who made the planet that Caesar is trying to to stake a claim on? Which, by the way, we don't talk about Caesar anymore because he's that earthly kingdom is gone. We're talking about Putin. And we're talking, you know, we're talking about these guys now. You understand that names change. Why is it? Because who owns everything? Not Caesar. God owns everything. He's saying, y'all are asking me the wrong question. I'm not for Rome. I'm not against Rome. This is mine. I rule this world. This is God's planet. Everything that we have is God's. In fact, in the religious thing, he answers this question, which he says, if you go to, uh, this is the religious question, verses 27 through 40. If you go down to um, verse 38. Yeah, verse 38. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. Jesus is saying, your life, You're asking me about the afterlife and who's going to be married to who in the afterlife? He says, you're missing the point. I gave you life. You have life because of me. Yes, there is a whole thing about not married and giving in marriage, but he's saying, listen, I'll set the rules in the afterlife. Don't worry about that. I'll set those rules. You don't have to worry about who's married to who in heaven. I got that covered. You just need to know I gave you life. Jesus is saying in so many words, I set the rules. I set the rules so you can sit there and be worried about Caesar. You can be worried about who you're going to be married to in the afterlife. You can be worried about all the, how many angels can dance on the top of a needle or pen of a head, uh, head of a pen. You can do all the weird little, 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 little weird kind of questions that you want. But I'm the one you need to be worried about. If I can say it that way, Jesus says, be afraid, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more they can do. I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. And there is only one who has the ability to cast anybody into hell. And that is God himself. No party, no tradition owns Jesus. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that how it is? Everybody wants to own Jesus. He's always on my side. He's, he ain't on your side. He's on my side. He's on my, whatever my team is, whatever my party is, whatever my people are, that's who Jesus is on. And Jesus says, no, I ain't. You can get on my side if you want to, but I'm myself. I am myself. You can't own Jesus. He's God all by himself. So we need to quit trying to lay exclusive claims on Jesus like we've got some edge. Like we're on the inside. We got his ear. Nobody else has got it. No, no, no. We need to unconditionally, unconditionally release, surrender our claims on him and rights to him and say, Lord, I'm at your mercy. And let him be the gracious and loving and merciful God that he is, but release our claims on him. 
I need to hurry along. There's a lot to cover here, so let me continue. Verse 41. Jesus now kind of goes on the offensive in this exchange between the leader, religious leaders and himself. He turns the tables and he goes after them with a question. And they ask, he asks the question. Let's read what he says there in verse 41. How say they that Christ is David's son? He's referencing here Psalm 110, verse 1. David, the writer of that psalm, makes a reference to the fact that he's talking about the Messiah in that verse, but he makes reference to the fact that Messiah would be both his son and the Lord of David. That's what he makes reference of. So how is it that you say that Christ is David's son? And David himself said in the book of Psalms, Psalm 100, uh, 110, verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make mine enemies thy footstool. David therefore called him Lord. How is he then his son? He's making reference to the fact that people are not recognizing that Jesus, rather Messiah, they didn't necessarily agree that it was Jesus, but they <clears throat> were looking for a Messiah. They didn't fully understand that this Messiah would be both divine in his um, origin and human. This is Jesus, both divine and human. Those two natures coming together, that's what he, is, what he is doing, so that he is both the son of David, physical line, and the Lord of David, God himself. So in essence, answering the question, what is God's, or rather Jesus's authority? Well, he is the promised Messiah that comes all the way back from the Old Testament and not even King David, who they would have considered, I mean, that was top of the pile. He was a big, he was a big deal. Not even King David is above this Messiah. He's saying no one is ever above Jesus. He is Lord of all. We can't allow ourselves, other people, and definitely not our stuff to usurp his authority. He is the Lord of all. We need to unconditionally surrender lordship. Who is the one that we, this is exactly what David does. He says he is the Lord. He is the one that I surrender to. Then lastly, go down to verse 45. Jesus has a little bit of a um, message that he wants to give to the people there. He says, and all the people are listening, and he's talking to his disciples, but he knows everybody's listening. And he says to them, beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes, love greetings in the, marketplace, in the markets, and the highest seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at feasts. He says, Got to look out for these religious folk. They like to look good. They like to be recognized and like to be honored. I want to confess to you as I was thinking about this particular portion, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday and Friday a little bit, this last little piece, and I was wrestling with it a little bit, just personally. Can I just tell y'all, y'all can argue whether I'm successful or not, but I like to look good, as good as I can. I like to put on good clothes, nice clothes. I was, uh, I was running yesterday in this race that I had planned for, and I was thinking about me running down this. I mean, I'm in the woods. Nobody can see me. But I was thinking about the clothes I had on. I'm like, man, I paid a lot for these shoes, and I paid a lot for these pants that I'm wearing. I, I just thought about the fact that I like to look good. 
Again, like I said, y'all can disagree that I do look good. I'm not asking you to say that I do. I'm just telling you, I kind of like to try. And I'm sitting here listening to what Jesus says. And he says, watch out for these people who walk in these long robes and love to get greetings in the marketplace. I, I, like, to, I like people to recognize me. I mean, I'll tell you, one of the things that's kind of nice about living in a place like this is, I mean, we haven't been here that long and people are starting to recognize us. And, and I like that. I, I'm not okay with that. I like people knowing who I am. I mean, I guess if you don't like people knowing who you are, maybe I should question what you've been doing that you don't want people to know about. But, but, but seriously, I, I kind of like those things. And I, I'm saying this, I, and I'm, I, my instinct, can I just be honest? My instinct is to try to mute Jesus' words and say, well, he didn't quite mean it like that. But I think what we can take from what he's saying here is there are some people who value their stuff. Y'all, y'all may not be those people. You can sit here and just, you can cast all your judgment on me if you want to. And I'm just going to tell you who I am. There's some people that value their stuff. They like their stuff. And he says further that they not only like their stuff, but they fuel their habit of stuff on the backs of the poor and the needy. Look what he says. Which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers the same shall receive greater damnation. He's saying that this arrogant, abusive self-indulgence is going to be damned. Now again, I, 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 can't, I can't lay at your feet this accusation because this is not something I can see from the outside because I don't think it's just about the clothes that these people wore or the stuff that they had or the houses they had. I think it was about the motives of what they did here. Just, just make sure you hear what I'm saying. But if you're one of those people that like the stuff and don't care how you got it and want everybody to think you are something, we have a word for that. We call that hypocrites, so we call. There's damnation to pay. That's what he says. Then he illustrates his point in verses one through four of the next chapter. He looked up and he saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. So you've got these rich folk that he's just been talking about. They like to look good. They like their stuff. And they're doing it on the backs of the poor and the weak. And they're throwing their money into the treasury. Why are they doing that? Because they want people to know, I got some money and I'm going to give it to the Lord because I'm such a good person. Say that? He's looking at it. And he also saw, verse two, a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. I, I can't quite equate this two mites to you because it's even smaller than the pennies that we have today in terms of the value. It is a very in, in, infinitesimal amount of money. It is like if you can imagine the least amount of money that you can have and still own it, hold it in your hand. That's what this woman has. And he says of this woman, as she takes her two mites and puts it into the treasury of the church, or the synagogue rather, of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow has cast in more than they all. Her two little mites, and you got these rich dudes throwing in bags of money. And he says, no, she's given more. Why? He explains. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of, of God. But she of her penury has cast in all the living that she had. Here you have one of the people that 
Remember in verse 47, these people that are being oppressed by these rich religious people, he actually points out one of those people in verses one and two. He says, this is what I'm talking about. These kind of people, they are, they, they are, being, they are being hoodwinked by these religious leaders to thinking they gotta give all their money to even earn favor with God. And they're using every dollar this woman gives and they're using it on their lavish lifestyles. And he's saying to her, say, listen, this one of these people that's been oppressed, has been abused, spiritually abused, she's giving in something that's more valuable than any of the rest of them. Because she gave to God all that she had. Not talking about financially here, because please understand this, God doesn't need your stuff. Do you understand that? God doesn't need your stuff. You can go home right now. Well, I guess you have to wait till tomorrow because the banks are closed. But go home, go to the bank tomorrow and clean out your account and take every dollar that's in there and just throw it up here on this altar. And you know what? I'm sure that our treasury will be very happy about that. But I can promise you it will earn you no favor with God. That is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is instead to be like that widow woman to say, listen, I'm going, to give, I'm going to give myself to God. I can guarantee you, I mean, two mites, I'm sure she, had, she didn't have a whole lot, but I bet she had a little bit more than that. It wasn't about, wasn't about the fact that she gave the last penny that she had. It was about the fact that she was in faith giving to God, knowing that he had all of her. And that's what Jesus even recognized. He said, she is not just giving of her abundance, but she's giving of her poverty. She's giving of what she doesn't have, and she is casting in herself. She is giving herself to God here. We need to stop giving God our stuff necessarily. Give it to him if that's what it takes, but he doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. Quit acting like you're trying to do God a favor. Too many Christians are acting like we're doing God a favor. Don't you see how big a check I wrote? Do you see how many hours I give? Do you see how much stuff that I do? Quit acting like you're suffering for the Lord. And again, I say this to my shame because that's one of the things that I've complained about before. Don't people know what I'm doing for God? Instead, we need to unconditionally surrender to him knowing that we don't deserve anything from him. The point of all this is to surrender yourself to God. Nothing you have is his, as yours. It's all his. I mean, literally nothing. Your very existence is owed to God. Are you going to be like these rebellious tenants in chapter 20, verse 9 through 16, grasping at what is not yours, it's what is his, willing to hurt people, willing to even reject his very own son, to grasp on to what is your, what you think is yours? Are you going to be, as Jesus talks about, this, this cornerstone that if you fall upon it, it's going to grind you to power? Are you going to be willing to run the risk of running headlong into the buzz saw of the rock that the builders reject? Jesus is not a mascot for your beliefs. And I've I fear that many Christians believe that. They think of him as sort of a, a mascot for our beliefs. Jesus is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not a communist either for that matter. 
He's not a liberal. He's not a conservative. He is not a traditionalist. He is not a progressive. He is not any of the labels that any of us will hold to. He's God. He's King of Kings. Lord of Lords. And He is, whether you accept Him or not, whether you appreciate this or not, whether you embrace this or not, He is Lord of everything. My invitation to you is to be like the widow who I believe was spiritually abused by the religious leaders of her day. Who I know was overlooked by most of the people that they were there. I can about guarantee you, except for her family and her close friends, there probably wasn't a religious leader there that knew her name. But let's be more like her and less like the powerful and wealthy religious leaders who I can tell you, everybody said, oh, I bet you, you know, old, old Rabbi Gamaliel, he really knows his Bible. Uh, oh, old Rabbi Paul, he, he, he is, he is such a godly man. Don't you, have you not heard him pray? This is the way they would have talked about him. But what we've got to do is we have got to see that he, God, Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the owner of all. That is going to look like, this is what this invitation looks like. You're going to need to fall at his feet and ask for mercy and grace. Now he said he would give it, not because he owes it, but because he's good. It's going to say, I acknowledge that everything I have is his. It's saying, I'm going to surrender everything to God, even surrendering myself to do with as he pleases. That's kind of risky because you don't know what he's going to do. But it's his. Will you give it all to him? We're going to ask you to stand, ask Vanessa to come, and we'll take a moment for invitation. Thank you for your attention this morning. A little bit of extra passage to look over, but I think it was necessary. I want to give you a moment to think about this for your own application, your personal application. What does this mean for you? I invite you, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to come and do that now. You can come to the front of this church and you'll come up here. I'm going to step down front here. But if you'll come up here, I will pray with you. I will show you from the scriptures what it means to believe in Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, I'm inviting you to come. And you can say, well, there's certain areas of my life that I have not surrendered to the Lord. I want to invite you to do that now. Give that, that thing up that you hold dear. Give up that belief that whatever that is, that you're a sin that you won't give up. Give it up now. Surrender it to him. Would you do that? I want to invite you. Lord, please move among your people. Give us, uh, I don't know what it is we need, but give it to us that we need it so that we can surrender it all to you. It's yours. Help us to submit ourselves to you. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.